and reading, at their very best, are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to learn more about the many perks of being a book lover. Our guest this week, Ann Bogle, is a fellow Kentuckian, as well as the person thousands of readers turn to for new book recommendations with both her popular book and lifestyle blog, Modern Mrs. Darcy, and on her podcast, What Should I Read Next? On her blog, you can sign up for book journaling classes, be part of a monthly online book club, or read lifestyle articles like her tips for cozy sweater care. Her podcast examines the reading life of her guests and suggests new titles for them based on their favorites, as well as the book they love to hate. She's also a published author of two books. Her newest, which comes out in March, is titled Don't Overthink It. Make easier decisions, stop second-guessing, and bring more joy to your life. Anne talks to us about how her blog started as an offhanded suggestion by her husband on New Year's Eve 10 years ago, why she doesn't feel the need to finish books she isn't enjoying, even if she's over halfway through, and some interesting things you may learn if you read the acknowledgments at the end of a book. Amy and I are here today with Ann Bogle, who you may know as the host of the podcast, What Should I Read Next? And she's also the creator of the Modern Mrs. Darcy blog. So we're so glad to have you today, Ann. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I have to tell you that I am fangirling a little bit because I'm a huge podcast listener and yours is the first reading podcast that I ever started listening to. And I think I've listened to almost every episode. <laughs> In fact, two summers ago, I binged listened to all the back episodes once I discovered you. So it's a huge honor to, to have you here with us today. Oh, well, it's my pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for that compliment. <laughs> Amy might have had to take an Ativan before you arrived. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with just a question about the journey to where you are now. Tell us a little bit about how you went from a person who we assume was just an avid reader mm -hmm. to getting the blog and the podcast and everything mm -hmm. you do now. Absolutely. Well, there wasn't a master plan. It's just been step by step along the way. Back in, I mean, almost 10 years ago now, my husband and I were having a conversation right around New Year's Eve that went you know, let, let's talk about the year gone by. What did we like? What didn't work for us? What do we want to be different in the year to come? And he suggested I start a blog because he'd been doing some blogging for work about uh, small business topics. And I thought, I don't even read blogs. You are out of your mind. But I am persuadable. And 20 minutes later, I was like, well, what could we call it? What would the categories be? Can we like sketch out a little logo? I came across that notebook fairly recently when I was unpacking one of those boxes that you just don't get to for years after you move. And I found my cheap spiral bound me target school supply half used up notebook that has like all the brainstorms on it and really terrible sketches. I don't know where that is now. I'd love to go back and look at it though after this conversation. But slow, so I started a blog and I wanted to focus on issues that were both timeless and timely for women. And I found pretty quickly, like in the first six months, 
which seemed like a slow evolution at the time, but in hindsight, it's like, oh, that happened quick. I realized that I really liked to approach current events, current topics of discussions through the lens of books and reading. And also that I really enjoyed just talking about books and book recommendations and what are you reading lately and what do you want to read next with my readers. So it did gradually go that direction. I'm just curious, were you an English major? I know a lot of people who are book lovers, mm-hmm. they have been book lovers, you know, since early on. No, I almost wish I was, but I did really love to read as a kid, and I was warned off being an English major. And again, I said I'm persuadable. I think that's a good thing and also really a bad thing, but I was encouraged by a few people that I maybe should or should not have trusted that if you love to read, maybe you don't want to make it your for, I mean, as a college student, like reading in your major becomes your job. And maybe you don't want to be reading like Bronte and Dickinson and um, Hurston, but you want to be reading, you know, make study, study and fun, fun and keep it apart. So I never did. I mean, I'm still catching up on this year. I want to read Madame Bovary. You know, like I never did that in school. Amy and I were both English majors, but there are still books yeah. that you just don't, yeah. you know, either because it's not part of the yeah. course load or whatever, you know, you yeah. sort of get out of school and then you have that, the yeah. shame sign, you know, like I didn't read whatever. Stein, yeah. It was Steinbeck for me. I yeah. never read yeah. Steinbeck. Yeah. You know, what's so funny though, is my major was in non-formal education, which I didn't use for years. And now that's what I do every day. I don't know if I could tell you specifically, what did I learn in college that connects to what I'm doing now? But in hindsight, that was a really good formation. For the job I didn't know existed when I was in college. How how did the progression go to to doing the podcast from your blog? Well, the podcast is the second iteration of a project that began on the blog. Way back in like 2014. Well, let me back up. I started talking about books on the blog. And if you get a reputation for being someone who, who reads a lot, who recommends books, who likes to discuss books... I find that a lot of people are just overwhelmed by how many books are out there. And with a plethora of options, they don't know how to narrow it down to one book that they could read right now. So a question that I quickly started getting all the time was, hey, can you just tell me a great book to read? And even before I started blogging, I knew that like a book that I love might not be one that you love. I mean, you all have a strong book club history. I'm sure people feel very differently about the books that you all read month in and month out. And so I'd say, well, you know, what are you, what are you looking for? What does that mean to you? Like, tell me about a great book you read. And they'd say, no, 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 no. Like, I just, just tell me something great. Well, that's not how it works. But it really, it got me thinking privately, why is that question so difficult to answer? And what would be a good way to get to the solution, which isn't necessarily to put a like universal great book in your hands, but something that you'll really enjoy reading next. And just one Sunday morning, I put up a post on an impulse, I never blog on Sunday mornings, that said, hey, I've been thinking about this and I have an idea. Let's do some literary matchmaking, personal shopping for books, whatever you want to call it. I have a plan. Let's try it out. Tell me three books you love, one book you don't, and what you're reading now. And then I'll take it a few requests at a time, and I'll recommend three titles you should read next. And I think I went away for the day and came home, and there were 200 comments, which is a lot. Not as many in 2014 as it would be in 2020 when commenting is dead and, you know, nobody talks civilly on the internet anymore. But I saw that there was a lot of demand for that, and I did start answering those requests. I do, like, a few every weekend. And I loved the idea, and I loved hearing what people like. It's so interesting to hear how the same reader can love books that are so completely different, and yet you can really form a picture of a reader. And I also really 
saw confirmed how hearing what somebody didn't like really helps you define what they do. I think it helps you loosen up and think about the issue more creatively. But I wanted to talk back to the people, and I wanted to do it without having a 30-email chain. Like, surely, if these are your favorites, you would have read this book, so I'm not going to recommend it. But what what if you haven't? Then you have to know. But I didn't want to use up. There were only three recommendations on books they had read. Or I'd be interested in saying, hey, is this a bridge too far? Are you comfortable going in a totally different genre if I really think I see in your themes that you would enjoy it? And I realized that it would be so much better as a conversation. And at the same time, I had some peers who were getting into podcasting, and I thought, well, that sounds fun. I love new projects and new challenges, and it took me forever, but I finally realized that I had this project that I really thought would be better suited to a conversational format. And I had this podcast idea I thought that would be fun to explore, and I finally realized, hey, those those could be the same thing. But I like started tossing ideas around with my husband and some fellow readers I know in like mid-2015, and we launched in January 2016, and now we're 217 episodes in. Something it's a like lot. that. It is. I mean, it's like it's like dog years or something. That's a long time for a podcast these days. Well, let's go back to your blog a moment, and it's called Modern Mrs. Darcy. Where did the inspiration for the name come from, and your relationship with Jane mm-hmm. Austen? That makes it sound like you have like a personal relationship, like, but she's dead. But what's the? <laughs> but she lives on in she her words, on, right? Yes. Something that I do really love is that when you talk about what an author has written on the page, it's always in the present tense. So like if I were talking about Jane Austen, as Jane Austen writes, because, you know, they're living works, not an English major, but I could fake it real good some days. I am not someone who's going to like need my smelling salts. Curtis Sittenfeld can write her Pride and Prejudice update and it's totally fine. I don't have this like great reverence, like Jane's name shall not be besmirked in any way, but I do love her and I also love how... uh, her work is still so fresh and relevant today, even though the sentence structure is so uniquely early 19th century England. Uh, But going back to like the blog, I wanted to write about issues that were timeless, specifically for women, but I wanted to write about them in a timely way. This timeless issue, what does it mean to us right now? today and that's where the modern mrs darcy came from modern miss bennett it just didn't have the same (laughs) the same like ring to it no it didn't and i still i've like every year i've blogged i thought we're finally going to change the name we're finally going to change the name because i don't it's a little cute it's a little precious i hate talking about it with men they're like jane austen what who modern mrs what yeah i just it would be pretty hard to change the name now, I must say. Uh, yes. Because that's, yes. that's what you're known as. I'm not, not allowed to change the name. Yes, yeah. and to be clear, that's not me. I'm not Modern Mrs. Darcy. I do not play her on the internet. It is a name <laughs> of the site. So with the podcast, did the idea before you started of what you wanted it to be and then the way it has turned out, is it the same or has it evolved? It has evolved a little bit, but it's really unusual how the concept hasn't changed. I mean, the core of the show is unchanged. A guest tells me three books they love, one book they don't, and what they're reading now, and I recommend three titles they should read next. The thing that has changed is that originally I envisioned it as being an 18-minute show. They would tell me, you know, like, Amy, have a seat. Tell me three books you love, one book you don't, and what you're reading now, and I'll recommend three titles you should read next. But what we added really pretty quickly was a conversation that provides context. Who are you? What do you do? What are some interesting aspects of your reading life that our listeners would enjoy hearing about? You know, going back to the question, like, can you recommend a great 
book, hearing the context and hearing somebody's, I feel like this word is overused now, but hearing somebody's story and what reading has meant in their life and what kinds of books they love and why really helps the person listening at home or in their car or in the gym, like click in and go, ah, that really resonates with me. Or I really relate to that, or that's totally happened to me, or I love that book that you just mentioned that was so formative. And it causes you to listen to what they loved and then what I recommend with new ears. And it helps you more effectively, I think, find titles that you will really enjoy. So when you have a guest on, I'm going to give you some superhero qualities here, but do you do that off the top of your head or is that something that you know in advance what their Mm -hmm. favorites and their Mm -hmm. dislikes are so that you can kind of do some research? Mm -hmm. And I mean, I would need to mull it over, but Mm -hmm. maybe you've been doing it long enough that it Mm kind of comes quicker to you. Well, we do like have the joke on our internal team sometimes which is who came up with the show concept? This is the worst. (laughs) The poor host. What were they thinking? And it was me. Um, we get a ton of submissions from people to be on the show. We talk to some people who are professional book people or who are people who are pretty well known. But we also, it's important to us that we talk to about like 60 to 70% of people our listeners call, I would never use this term, but our listeners call regular readers. I feel like nobody's reading life is regular. But what we mean by that is you're not LeVar Burton. Mm-hmm. You're not Oprah. You're not the Instagram person who has, you know, 2 million followers. That's not, we want to talk to people who you at home listening feel like could be your mom, your sister, your teacher, your daughter, your grandma, your neighbor, your friend, your barista. We want everybody at some point to hear there. We say like, you find your book twin. You listen and you're like, oh, that is my reading life. And you listen in a different way. And you write down every title mentioned in the episode. Although I think it's funny that so many people write us after and they say, yeah, that book that that reader said that they hated with a fiery passion, the way she described it, I read that next and I loved it. Like (laughs) all the time. Because there's so much that we talk about. I think there's some degree of like objectively good and objectively needed work before it landed in the hands of readers. But so much of it is just having to do with your personal taste in books. And when you listen to our show, that really helps you find that. We do try to feature a wide variety of books. So we ask you in advance before we invite you to be on the show, tell us your three books you love and one book you don't. And then what you're reading now, but that almost always changes by the time they come on the show. At least half the time, the guest will be like, oh, I got to swap in a book or two because I just finished something great. So that's a surprise to me. But I do know those things in advance. So I can start thinking about what I might recommend. But just looking at three titles, I may start to form an idea of why the same reader liked all these books. And sometimes I'm right, but more often I just am completely surprised by the direction the conversation goes. Mm. I'll start with a list of titles that might be promising to talk about, but other than that, we're winging it, which is lots of fun to listen to. But also every week I sit down to record an episode and I think, oh my gosh, this is going to be the day where they say, what do I read next? And I'm like, I don't know. Do you got any ideas? Like, I just, I don't know. You need to figure this out for yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But something that does help take the pressure off me is that we always have really detailed show notes that list all the books we talk about in the episode so people don't run off the road trying to, like, jot it down on the napkin while they're driving. But our listeners chime in and we'll recommend books to the guest in comments, too. They have books for years by the time. They're done with their What Should I Read Next experience. So both your blog and your podcast have been huge successes. In fact, I would say probably that your reading podcast is one of the most listened to book podcasts out there. So what's that been like for it to be such a, a success? And I say that because you also have a summer reading guide. 
where you read lots of books that are mm -hmm. going to be coming out in the mm -hmm. summertime and you winnow them down for people to the ones that you think have the widest appeal that you think are the best. And you're kind of a king or a queen maker as oh. far as those books go. I feel mm -hmm. like people see it on your reading list. They're going to mm -hmm. go out and, and try it. Mm -hmm. So is there any pressure with that? Uh, well, it's a hard question to answer. Thank maybe, you but. for those kind words. I appreciate that. That is true. And it's something I think about because I know when a guest doesn't recommend a book or when a guest says, hey, this book wasn't for me, people listen and they'll listen to why and they may read it anyway. And that's great because something that we do on the show is we try to talk about how reading is a matter of taste. And I'm definitely not saying there's not a reason to persevere to the end of whatever high school classic that you just were bored to tears by and you don't get. Like, there's a reason for pushing through those hard books. And I think sometimes we need to build our skills as readers. And sometimes you get to the end and being able to articulate, hey, this is why this book wasn't for me is a really powerful thing when it comes to you being able to choose your next read. If you know why a book doesn't work for you, then you can stop choosing those books. As opposed to saying like, oh, you should never read this author. It's garbage. Like that is not what we do on the show. When we say this book wasn't for you, it might be because I've learned that I just need one character I can root for, you know, where some people love reading books where everybody's horrible to each other in a really <laughs> apocalyptic way and they think that's fantastic. So that's what, when I'm talking about matters of taste, like that's what I'm talking about. But I know that if I say, I thought this book was really well done and it wasn't for me, a lot of people will not read it for that reason, it, which goes against everything that we like try to teach people. But that is something that I take really seriously and I've really wrestled with over the years, like how to be upfront and, you know, really educate people to choose books that work for them and yet know that my voice carries more weight than I really feel like it should. It's a struggle and it's something I go back and forth on. I do know that it is my pleasure like to champion books that I really love and that I see readers really benefiting from and opening readers' eyes. And my favorite thing in the world is to put a book in front of people and say, like, you think that you don't like sci-fi or you think that you don't like romance or you think that you can't read, like, serious literary fiction. But this book is amazing. And let me tell you what the reading experience is like. And let me tell you why it might be for you. And let me, like, nudge you to pick up a book that you wouldn't have chosen for yourself, left to your own devices in a million years, but you will be so glad you read. And when I think about how I can do that for some books and some readers, it really helps me see the potential and not the peril of having that, I hate the word platform, but of, of having that kind of influence in the book world. I do think it's tricky though these days because I think in the modern publishing landscape and especially on social media, there are so many pictures of pretty new books and mm. publishers are freely putting them in the hands of influencers and it can be really effective but I think it just leads a bunch of readers to have the fear of missing out and they're reading based on marketing and not based on the merits of the book and I don't want the to sound snobby yeah. about it yeah but I want readers to be able to choose based on the substance and based on the experience of their fellow readers and not based on sales copy or who's sending out free books this month do you ever feel like you have to read certain things because now, you know, you do have this platform mm -hmm. or do you ever struggle with that? Like, I sort of have to read this, even though if I had my druthers, <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily mm -hmm. pick this up. I think that was possibly a stage I went through. Like, I felt like I needed to, like, weigh in on the hot new thing. But, I mean, reading reading's not fun, like, when you make it a chore. Mm -hmm. And so 
reading is very much part of my job. Um, sometimes that's like I'm writing my own books and I'm doing research. Like that's a very different kind of reading. But now it's winter and I'm reading titles for the summer reading guide. And I've learned that if my reading life gets too off balance, if I read too much forthcoming, then I am not a happy reader. And a happy reader is a cranky reader. And cranky readers don't like anything. So I really try to protect that. And I also feel like nobody needs my voice to chime in and say, hey, the new Reese's Book Club selection is great and you should go read it. But trying to help readers find books that aren't going to be front and center at their local bookstore or aren't going to be splashed all over social media. I feel like that's something that I can do. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes I do really want to read the next hot new book. And that's fine because I'm like I'm a reader who wants to read a lot of what I want to read for the pure pleasure of reading it. But oh, when I start feeling like the world needs my voice on this, oh, that's just not, that's not a good situation to be in. And you don't want to listen to me anyway. Like how obnoxious would that be? So how many books do you have to read in order to get ready for the summer reading guide to narrow them mm-hmm. down? Um, I think I start about 400 and I finish about uh, 100, 110. Amy is working with me on this mm-hmm. issue about like starting a book and not mm-hmm. finishing, but I'm still, I'm like, oh, that's a lot of books to start yeah. and not finish. But Well, the purposes really matter. I mean, because I know a lot of readers have a huge hang up with this and a lot of people will say, but there was this one time in 1993 <laughs> where I read to the end of the book that I hated for 550 pages, but the last 10 pages made the book. And that experience makes me think I can never put down a book again. And that's... Decisions made out of fear, even if they're reading decisions, are not good decisions. Reading is my job. And like I read different books for different purposes. And so when I'm reading books for the summer reading guide, I can start reading a book and I can think, you know, I may really enjoy this sometime, but this doesn't belong in the summer reading guide. We don't need another historical novel at this point or the tone is wrong. I would have a hard time defining the tone I want for the summer reading guide, but I can just be like, this isn't it. So I think, okay, I want to come back to this one in. August, but it's not right for now. Uh, my friend started a, a literary site and podcast recently, and she was telling me how she really wanted to read a book, and the reader in her wanted to finish it. But the businesswoman in her had to say, not now. Like, mm-hmm. you, you can read this in four months' time. And I think understanding how people read for different reasons is helps readers, like, let go of the angst of putting a book down. So maybe. Maybe. Well, Does it carry? We're taking small steps with her. I just think that you can only read so many books in your life. You can only read so many pages tonight. I never want to get to the end of a book and think, I am sorry that I spent four hours of my life on that book. Now, I am great with getting to the end of the book and being like, I hated that and I'm ready to talk about it. I mean, those can be some of the most illuminating discussions for your own reading life. They can be some of the most fun discussions for a book club. But getting to the end and feeling like you were emotionally manipulated into turning the pages and you're mad about it you can do that once and have your fun discussion but then there are other fun literary discussions to be had so just move on when you're going through a book how far do you typically have to get to be able to make a decision about like whether Mm -hmm. it works for the summer reading or different readers have different Mm -hmm. places they have to get to in a book before they can decide but for you Mm -hmm. personally about how how far into a book is that nancy pearl's rule of thumb is 100 minus your age for how many pages to give a book. 50 is a common rule of thumb and one that I might tend to. But like for me, if I'm reading a title for the summer reading guide, sometimes I'll know on page four, Mm -hmm. this is not going to work. But then I have set down, I don't know, 300 page books at page 200 going, you know, I I keep waiting for this to feel like it's something worth my reading time. And I could do something else with those last 100 pages. 
So besides all these other things that you're doing, you are also an author. You've published two books, Reading People, How Seeing the World Through the Lens of Personality Changes Everything. And also I'd Rather Be Reading, which is a collection of essays mm -hmm. about the literary life. And you have a new one that's coming out on March 3rd. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that and what inspired it. Uh, well, that one is called Don't Overthink It. And the subtitle, I have to tell you the big thing about the subtitle for you English majors is the big internal debate with my publisher was, can we use overwhelm as a noun or not? <laughs> it's been in usage since like 1957. Okay. But it's also wrong in a lot of dictionaries. We didn't. So the subtitle is Make Easier Decisions, Stop Second Guessing, and Bring More Joy to Your Life. But Stop Overwhelm was mm. one of the things for a while. Yeah, I probably would have had a problem with that. I know. I know. That's why it's not there. Like, technically, I'm going to call it correct, but I do not. This is not the question I want to be answering yeah. until 2035. Because then it would bother you maybe every time you saw it for the rest oh, of Oh, it was your definitely going to bother yeah, somebody. Yeah. Yes. So this is the book most born well that's not really fair I was going to say this is the book most born of conversations I've been having on the blog since 2011 but that's true of reading people and I'd rather be reading as well this is the book born out of conversations with so many girlfriends and with my kids and the stuff we've discussed over drinks at a hundred girls nights I'm a woman who has friends in their you know 30s and 40s who this is what we think about and this is what we talk about and we don't know what to do I mean nobody wants to spend their time overthinking we know it's unhealthy and unproductive um, it doesn't do us any good sometimes it does us active harm but so many of us do it because we don't know how to stop and this kind of issue you know timeless and timely um, has been going on for a long time but it's particularly relevant to women today and requires an approach that wasn't required 50 years ago. Like now we're all walking around with computers in our pockets, like begging us for distraction, limiting our focus, actively influencing our thoughts in ways that are just unprecedented, like our mother's generation. Um, some of us, our older sister's generation, this didn't have to deal with. But it's an issue that matters to a lot of women. And one that especially based on all these non-book or sometimes book-adjacent conversations that have been unfolding on my blog since 2011, I felt really drawn to. I find that in my books, I'm drawn to issues I have wrestled with. And I know that sounds silly because one of my books is like a charming collection of essays about the reading life. But I told you how for a long time I really wrestled with, okay, when readers say they're looking for a great book, what is that? mean. I mean, there are so many issues of the reading life that I really have wrestled with, and those are reflected in the pages in what I hope is a really fun way. But in Don't Overthink It, those same issues I feel like I've been dealing with personally or discussing with others for so long, instead of being charming and relatable. I hope these are relatable and really helpful and practical. So is there a book tour involved? Do you do book tours when you are promoting a book? Yes. Have they gotten bigger with each subsequent book, or is it still about the same? No, I'm going fewer places now for this book. I went to about 25 cities for I'd Rather Be Reading, but this year I have a junior in high school who's got to go on college visits. So, yeah, I'm not go I think I'm going to maybe 15 cities for Don't Overthink It, but we're making travel plans right now. So I'm starting in Connecticut and New York City, real excited to go to the Strand, and then I'm going to Atlanta, Texas, the Midwest, and then we have some other dates that aren't on my blog yet, modernmrsdarcy.com slash events. But I love doing that. I love getting out and talking to readers in person. No event is ever the same. Just hearing the, the question and answer portion is always my favorite because you hear what your talk 
inspired in people you hear what they're wrestling with or you hear the surprising funny question that doesn't have anything to do with the book but has to do with the podcast or the blog and I really enjoy those off-the-cuff spur-of-the-moment interactions that happen with readers that you cannot predict or anticipate I don't know I just feel like even as authors so many of us go out on the road and we have our stump speech and getting the unscripted question and unscripted answer is the reason I love to go to book events I was looking through, I'd rather be reading. And I, I really enjoyed the chapter about the acknowledgments mm. at the end of books. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that. What What is it that you particularly like about the acknowledgments? Okay, so in I'd Rather Be Reading, I do have an essay. Is it called Keep Reading? Yes, I, I believe Which we is. really debated about because in like 4% of books, the acknowledgments are at the very front of the book. But they're usually in the back. I prefer them in the back because sometimes they're spoilers. So by all means, put them in the back of the book. A common thread through all my books and my love of reading is I just, I love the behind the scenes of anything. Like I like to know how it's made. I like to know how it works. In the acknowledgement section where the author gives their thanks, you really get such a glimpse into who the person is, especially if you're reading a work of fiction, like their sense of humor may not come through until you get to the acknowledgments. Because the novel, like the characters are supposed to have their own personality, and that could be totally different from the author's personality. And I think it also reinforces the idea that any book you read that has a single author's name on the cover is the result of dozens, if not hundreds, of people's labor, and you get to see who that is. And I just love seeing the various things that authors say. Like reading some books, I found out like, oh, there are four novelists I love. And apparently they all go to Cabin in Wisconsin every year (laughs) and workshop their stuff together because you'll see that in the acknowledgments. Or you'll see where they went to school or who their second grade teacher was that they kept in touch with. Tana French has a line in her acknowledgments. It's like a recipe for David, you know? Flat crust, olive, sausage, green onions, 350 (laughs) degrees, 20 minutes. And you're like, there's a story there. And I'm want to know what it is but I don't know that I'd ask because that feels a little intrusive (laughs) Um, or they'll say things like you know to my editor thank you so much for rejecting the first draft I handed you of this manuscript like the book is better for it like thank you for saving my career you just find out all these little nuggets about the author's life and their work that definitely didn't come up in the book itself and as someone who loves behind the scenes I think that's so fun Although what I really should have realized and did not is that if you write an essay about how much you love great acknowledgments and then you sit down to write your own, like, wow, does that <laughs> put the pressure. pressure on? <laughs> so here in Louisville, you're often asked to interview famous authors that come in to do book mm, talks. And mm-hmm. I'm thinking specifically of two I, I attended, which was mm-hmm. Celeste Ng mm-hmm. and Leon Moriarty. Mm-hmm. Oh, those are fun events. Yeah. I'm glad you could be there. Do you ever get starstruck when you're asked to do that? I try really hard not to be. I am like, uh, you talked about how I am a tastemaker, and that is a word and phrase I've reluctantly accepted. But I know I'm not Leon Moriarty. I am not Celeste Ng. They have superstar careers. I do not. Very aware of all that. But I've also experienced how you don't feel like a human being when someone is afraid to talk to you because they think that you are someone, I don't know, important. I mean, based on that experience, you know, my own like little tiny, not equatable experience, I just think it's important to put them at ease. And also because we're both, we're all people is to not handle anybody with kid gloves. I mean, to be kind and gentle, but also they are a person 
And if you treat them as anything more or less, they're going to feel weird. Because on the flip side, some people think like, oh, well, they won't mind if you totally objectify them or take their picture while they're eating dinner because they're like above all that. You know, they're used to it. It's fine. But they're also, they're a person. So I try, you know, like, hey, I'm Anne, you're Celeste, and we're going to have a talk. So you, you know what we talk about backstage is stuff like it's hard to be on the road. Where do you eat when you're in Louisville? <laughs> and also, if you get a cold again on book tour, you've got to use Zycam. It's the best. <laughs> so I thought of Celeste Ng when I was popping Zycam on my own mini book tour events we did back in October and messaging her like, thank you so much. I'm so sorry I need to take you up on it, but thank you so much for that Zycam recommendation. What do you think is the key to a good interview with an author? Well, I know what... What I want to do in an interview, and I want to give them the opportunity to talk about something they haven't talked about before. A lot of times when you're touring, especially if you're touring a lot, like Celeste Ng has been talking about Little Fires Everywhere since 2017 now. But a lot of these authors are, if you become great at writing, <laughs> you're almost forced to become great at speaking. And you end up talking about the same things a lot, which you're a pro. You can do it at that level, and you can make it sound really interesting to the audience. But I want it to be enjoyable for them, and I want them to be able to talk about something that they don't often or don't ever get to talk about. So my goal is always to ask them a question that they haven't had before, not because it's weird, but because it sheds light on a different aspect of the work or it comes at it in a slightly different way. Well, it's, I mean... <laughs> I get excited if I get to go see somebody in concert, mm -hmm. but for them, it's their job and mm -hmm. they have done the same songs mm -hmm. over and over mm -hmm. for, you know, 20 years or mm -hmm. whatever. So I, I do think that sometimes it's hard to be mindful of mm -hmm. what the other person is experiencing mm -hmm. because as a fan or, you know, that mm -hmm. you've enjoyed their books, you're looking at it from a completely different angle. Mm -hmm. And I always ask authors, no matter, because we do talk to authors on what should I read next. And I do do a lot of local and not local interviews. Like, what do you want to talk about? And also, what are you so tired of talking about mm -hmm. that you just do not want to go there? And just knowing, hey, we only have so much time together. Like, how should we spend it? I think that's a great way for everybody to get the most out of it. Like the two people talking and also the people who get to listen in. You have toured lots of bookstores and literary places, mm -hmm. but... As a resident of Louisville, what mm -hmm. are some things when you're away that you think, I miss that about your hometown? And then what are some things that you think, I wish we had that here? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a good question. I do love traveling and seeing what life is like in other places. And of course, seeing what the book life is like, because doesn't that go hand in hand? So I feel like Louisville is it's such a great place to live. I love that it's, it's doable, it's compact. And I love my neighborhood and my community and the friendliness and seeing the same faces. And for a city our size, we have an amazing art scene. And something else that I love about that is you can actually participate. Like I used to live in Chicago, which has a vibrant arts culture and literary culture. But going to any of those individual things is a commitment. Just with the traffic and the distance and the, oh, it's just, there's a lot you can participate in. It, but it's hard to build into the regular rhythms of your life. But in Louisville, I mean, I can zip down to the Kentucky Center from my first ring suburb in nine minutes. And, you know, my bookstore is right down the road. Like we have these great events and they're also so easy to participate in. And I love that about Louisville. I also feel like our literary community is still being built up. 
And it's really inspiring to go to other cities where you do see that they have a more deeply rooted, established literary community. It seems like in some cities, all the local authors know each other and have their own shelves at the bookstores. And some of the local books are always the bestsellers and they're prominently displayed. And it gives you a real flavor. Just walking around the community, if you pop into art centers or literary centers or bookstores, you can see what the literary scene unique to that community is. And I've seen that a little more in Louisville, but I'd like to see that develop further. And on that, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Ann Bogle and with Carrie. And I know Carrie's very excited to talk about this book that she just finished. I am. So it's called What Came from the Stars, and it's by Gary D. Schmidt. And he is the author of The Wednesday Wars, which I think I've maybe talked. I don't know. I've talked about that book a lot with various people. The Wednesday Wars is a wonderful book. I loved it. And I also very much enjoyed what came from the stars. I listened to it on audiobook, but it is very different from the Wednesday Wars. So the chapters bounce between what is happening on this other planet far out in the universe. And this planet kind of has the the feel of Lord of the Rings. The way the characters talk, the way they describe things, it sort of has that feel. Well, what is happening on this other planet is that this one character puts all of the art into a necklace and sends this necklace out into the universe and it ends up in chapter two falling into the lunchbox of one Tommy Pepper (laughs) and Tommy Pepper lives in Plymouth Massachusetts with his sister and his father his mother has died and so that's one of the complicating factors Mm -hmm. in the story what happens because he has this necklace he ends up putting it on and it provides him with the ability to sing and to draw and to not just draw but he can draw in such a way that if he draws a picture of a cow the cow is actually chewing grass so it's not just a flat picture it it has movement well the bad guys on this other planet eventually come to earth because they understand that this necklace and the arts ability that it has isn't just wonderful arts ability it is power and so they come to earth and they try to retrieve it i like fantasy so this was in my wheelhouse i sort of like that it went back and forth between a modern story and this other planet i did happen to read a couple goodreads uh Mm -hmm. reviews and the people were like i love wednesday wars and this is not like wednesday wars and i feel about that the way i felt when you two came out with octung baby and people said oh i want them to do the joshua tree why can't they keep doing the joshua tree because they're doing something different and we really don't want them to keep doing the same thing Mm -hmm. forever so i love this book now i don't love it quite as much as i love the wednesday wars the story of tommy pepper has all the things that made the wednesday wars wonderful it has that sense of tenderness kids figuring out who they are and why they feel the way they do and dealing with really hard situations he has a group of friends who are really funny and cute it has that humor that i think gary schmidt is really good at putting into his stories but it also has this fantasy element so i guess if you don't like fantasy 
it's probably not your cup of tea, but I thought it really blended them pretty well. And it makes me interested to see what else he's done. And it's middle grade. Like and it Wednesday is middle grade. Right? Yes, it is middle grade. If a teacher wanted to read this to his or her students, because the people on this other planet, they use different words for things. So for example, where we would call something like a castle, they call it the resid. And when he talks about how a painting was really, really good, you know, we would say, oh, that's really well done, or that's excellent. But they would say it's thrimble. And so what would be really cool, I think, in a classroom setting is to have students read this and then use the context clues to figure out, well, what do we think those words mean? Because, I mean, that's how Mm -hmm. with words we don't know that are English or whatever language you speak. You kind of use context clues to figure them out. So I think it has application in the classroom, too, as not just a fun read, but also a way to... Mm -hmm develop some skills. So what about you, Anne? What are you currently reading? I am currently reading a book that sounds not that different from the Gary D. Schmidt, which is not what I expected from Gary D. Schmidt. That sounds very interesting. Tommy Pepper. What a great name. He's great at naming his characters. I'm reading the new book from N.K. Jemison. It comes out this spring. It's called The City We Became, and it's the first in a new series. And what I think is interesting about this, hot on the heels of your recommendation, is fantasy and science fiction are not genres that I typically find immediately hospitable, uh, which is what Jemison does. Like, she's won a ton of awards, a ton of Hugos and other awards for writing great science fiction. That's what she's known for. And she is widely acknowledged to be a genius. She is so good at what she does. But that doesn't mean it's always like the first thing I'm going to rush out and pick up. But I started reading this book this week and it just sucked me right in. The premise is really cool. It might coalesce very nicely with my urban planning fixation thing I have. And I started reading it the day after I got back from a trip to New York City. And this book is all about New York City. So the city we became, haven't figured out what the title means yet. That's coming. But the basic premise is that there are great cities in the world who reach a stage of development where they become sentient. Like they take on a life of their own. And in this book, a great battle is developing between New York City as embodied by five people who represent the lives of the five boroughs, who are doing battle against this as yet unnamed and unidentified entity. But the fate of New York City and the world as a result is at stake. It's really weird, hugely imaginative. It's the kind of book where you read it and you think, I can't believe that someone invented this thing out of their imagination. Like, this is incredible and bizarre. And I am here for it. And I want to see what happens next. I believe that that is one of the books that Alex Harrow recommended when she was on the show, too. That's so fun. She's our uh, book club selection for February. We're reading The 10,000 Doors of January. We both love that book. I know. We're reading that in the Modern Mrs. Darcy book club, and we get to talk to her at the end of the month. I'm really looking forward to it. That's great. She's, She's a lot of fun. So, Amy, what have you had going on? Well, I am up to my eyeballs and everything, the March family. (laughs) And if you don't know what that is, and you have not seen the new movie adaptation of Little Women that's directed by Mm -hmm. Greta Gerwig, and all the love for Louisa May Alcott that you see on social media. I reread Little Women by uh, Louisa May Alcott 
I listened to it on audio. I'd read it two other times, once when I was probably a teenager and another time maybe 10 years ago. But I felt like I needed a refresher before I went to see the movie. And I'm so glad I did because I had forgotten so many details about that. I still love the book. I've always liked it, but each time I read it, I love it a little bit better. And if you don't know about Little Women, it's basically a hopeful, heartwarming family saga of the four March sisters. They're in Concord, Massachusetts, and when the story begins, their father is away serving in the Union Army as a chaplain during the Civil War. And it's a story that's based largely on the many aspects of Alcott's own life. And while I do love it, Carrie and I do share a pet peeve about this book, which is there's a lot of moralizing. She kind of hits you over the head with it a little bit. So then we went to go see, our book club went to go see The New Little Women, and I loved it. I could gush on and on about how much I loved it. <laughs> and then the other day I watched the 1994 version of it with Winona Ryder. That one was very good, too. I ended up crying in both of them. And I don't really like crying in movies. So the book that I'm really going to talk about, though, is a book that I remembered that I had read many years ago and thought, I need to reread that. And the book is called March by Geraldine Brooks. Mm -hmm. And this book came out in 2005, and it won the Pulitzer Prize. So where Little Women is the story of the March sisters, the book March is Brooks' imagining of the lives of Mr. March and Marmy before and during the time that Little Women takes place. So she fills in the gaps that Alcott doesn't elaborate on in Little Women. It's so funny that you were talking about the afterwards because I found out where Brooks got the basis for her imagining of Mr. March by reading the afterward because she used Alcott's father, whose name was Bronson, and he's what she used as sort of her template. Yes, for the Mr. March in the book. And so Bronson Alcott, he was a transcendentalist and he was an abolitionist and he was friends with Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry Thoreau, who also make appearances in this book. What I loved about this telling is that we find out how Mr. March lost the family fortune. It gives us more insight into his marriage to Marmee. There's a scene in Little Women where Joe laments having a bad temper and Marmee says that she has to battle her temper every day. And it seems strange because when you see Marmee and you read Little Women, Marmee seems like she's sort of the perfect mother, the perfect wife. But in this book, Brooks really shows us that she has human faults. And they elaborate a little bit more on her temper. And because she has human faults, she becomes much more real and relatable. It's funny because Brooks quotes her mother in the afterward saying, nobody in real life is such a goody-goody as Marmee. <laughs> <laughs> and so really Brooks has shown us that that's true. And Mr. and Mrs. March are much less perfect and therefore much more interesting. But largely this book is about an idealistic man who goes to war. He comes back damaged physically and emotionally. He basically has PTSD. And he leaves the war as a dreamer, but he comes back feeling guilty for all the things that happened during wartime. So Where Little Women is a, a book of hope, I would say March is a book that shows both the dark cruelty of war and how it affects a man and his family. And while you can read March, if you haven't read Little Women, I just don't think it's going to have the same resonance. When I read this book before, I had read Little Women, but it had been many years before, and it didn't have the impact that it, that it did this time around. So I do think that it would be best if you have seen the movie or read the book before you read it, if you really want to get the most out of it and have the richer experience. So I'm curious, since I have 
taught little women before, actually to a class full of boys, which was fun. Would you recommend that students, you know, maybe in a classroom setting, have to read March after Mm. reading Little Women just to provide it some more depth and discussion? I mean, have to? I mean, I don't know about have to, (laughs) but I I mean, at really... In my room, it's have to. (laughs) But to me, it really did add a lot of context. I mean, obviously, not necessarily maybe what Louisa May Alcott had in mind, but to me, it it made it a lot richer experience. Cool. All right. Well, so that sounds like something I would like because I love to not wear rose-colored glasses. I love Little Women, but golly, it's just (laughs) sentimental. (laughs) Well, if you're a person who likes Little Women because it's sentimental, you may not like this book. That I will say because it, you know, Provide some reality. There's a lot of reality, rough reality in there. Sounds like it's right up my alley. Well, when we come back, we are going to ask Ann Bogle her top five. We are back with Ann Bogle, and we are going to be asking her her top five. So, Anne, what is the top podcast and or blog that gave you the bug to start one yourself? First of all, can I just say superlatives are so hard. <laughs> I did not read blogs before I started one. But podcasts. Okay, so I don't want to break your system. But when it comes to putting out my own stuff, I have tried really hard to like stay in my lane and make something interesting and didn't really look hard at what other people were doing because I already told you repeatedly that I'm persuadable but you got to make your own stuff I will say that podcasts I love listening to uh Sam Jones interviews mostly Hollywood celebrities not a world I know a ton about I don't even watch a lot of movies but I love those interviews about the creative process you're you're not the only guest who's had problems with having to pick (laughs) I won't be wishy-washy on all of them I promise so what is the top literary destination anywhere in the world where you would like to visit? Where I'd like to visit? Mm-hmm. Can we just say the city of London? Okay. I, I've been once as a kid, but I'd like to go in like full grown-up book nerd style one day soon. And what's one that you have already been to? Oh, uh, great places in the States because we love seeking out independent bookstores just wherever we go. But I got to say for unique destinations, I loved going to Wigdon, the tiny town in Scotland. That's their national book town. It's not like any place else I've ever been. When I was in college, I got to go to England and Ireland and Wales Mm -hmm. for 10 weeks Uh and study. And I saw lots of cool things in London. Like Mm -hmm. I got to see Jane Austen's Mm -hmm. grave at her stone at Westminster Abbey Mm -hmm. and I had pictures of waiting outside at um, 221B Baker Street Mm -hmm. but you know the thing is I was 19 I didn't appreciate Mm -hmm. it then the way I would now so even so you have to go again I have to go again I hear that so you love plants and gardens do you grow indoor plants yourself and if so what is your top tip for keeping an indoor plant alive I do (laughs) grow indoor plants okay my top anti-tip is like it's okay if you kill it it's a house plant it's not that expensive. I mean, if you ever bought like an $8 bouquet at Trader Joe's, like you can buy houseplants for less than that and they last longer than those flowers are going to. So if there's ever a place in your life to embrace a spirit of experimentation, houseplants <laughs> are such a low stress way to do it. I mean, potentially low stress, 
But if you go into it thinking like, hey, let's see how this works. Can I keep it alive for longer than a week? Yes, and we'll count that a win. If you go in with that attitude and not, oh my gosh, what if I kill it? Then you can just have so much more happiness. But I have found that benign neglect is <laughs> the best way to keep my houseplants alive. It seems like when I fuss over them and fuss over them, they don't like to be fussed over. When I'm just like, I'm going to give you water sometimes and then pretend I don't see you, that just goes better. That but this only work with children, though. I've tried yeah. that with my children. It doesn't really work like that. I love succulents for that reason. Mm -hmm. I mean, the ones that I have been able to keep mm -hmm. alive are generally succulents because mm -hmm. you just have to occasionally water them. And mm -hmm. that's really all you have mm -hmm. to do. But I know some people say orchids are supposed to be so easy to grow and that they love neglect, except for when they say they love neglect and that makes me obsess about am I neglecting it enough? Mm -hmm. Anyway, I, I, I don't do well with houseplants. Do you tend to stick with succulents or do you have good luck with all no, types? No, I of have a couple that are supposed to be pretty fussy. I've killed a few, but I have kept alive for years far more than I have killed. And I haven't killed any of the big ones. I will say also, so you asked for my top tip and now we're going on like three. That's okay. But getting local advice, whether that's from a friend or like a local plant shop, we have two great ones in Louisville, Mahonia and Forage. Because when I have plants that aren't doing so well, I tend to go to the internet and they don't know what the climate is like in Louisville, Kentucky in the winter or, you know, whatever time of year. But my local plant shop can be like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, here's what you need to do living here with the weather right now. And it just gives, I mean, sometimes I think we just all need like a, a little shot of confidence that we're not screwing it up and a local expert could provide that. So you mentioned on your show occasionally that you have an interest in urban planning. So I'm wondering what sparked that interest and also what is a top example of urban planning that might pique other listeners' curiosity? Yes, I do. So what I mean by that is I'm just fascinated by how the way our spaces are shaped, whether you're talking about the tiny space of a backyard garden or the large space like a highway interchange affects the way that you live your life because you respond to your environment whether you realize you do or not. A top example. Well, I have a top book recommendation for this. I love Walkable City by Jeff Speck. And if you were to read a book like this, or he also has Walkable City Rules, um, which lays out a hundred foundational recommendations for the way we plan cities, um, which are not always the ways we're planning cities today. But if you read a book like that and you walk down the street, you will see the sidewalks differently, the curb cuts differently, the parking differently, like it will change the way you see the world around you. And I think a really fascinating way. That sounds like something I would like. Where I live, I can stand at the end of my neighborhood and see the sidewalk that could get me to things mm -hmm. that I might actually mm -hmm. want to walk to, but there's no sidewalk connecting my neighborhood to that sidewalk mm -hmm. there yonder, mm -hmm. and it drives me absolutely bonkers. I'm like, can't we just get a sidewalk so that I could go actually buy my groceries and not have to get in my car? Mm -hmm. That would mm -hmm. be lovely. But Walkable City. Walkable Talks City. about all that stuff. Sounds like a good book for me. This is the, the last question, I believe, if I'm counting right. And you don't have to worry about how many questions you've actually answered. Because <laughs> this is a book show, not a math show. What was the top book that you hated reading when you were in school? I hope no kids have to read that these days. But we suffered through The Song of Roland in eighth grade. Okay, see, here's the thing. I was 13. 
I don't know if it was bad. <laughs> or just that you were 13. <laughs> or it was just way over my head. Because I see, I mean, you're an educator. I see these trends now where schools want to look serious and like they're very academic. So they're pushing down the ages at which you read. Uh, like there are seventh graders reading The Great Gatsby in our city right now. That is not right. Mm. That is a book crime. Because I think when kids read books that they are not ready for, and I'm just not talking about emotional content, but like not developmentally able to handle because their poor little brains haven't developed enough to know or care what is happening on the page. I feel like instead of getting an early inspiration for reading any kind of literature, you're like inoculated from ever being impacted against it. You think like, you know, I, I read an important book once and it was the worst thing that ever happened to me in school and I am never doing that again. And that is a travesty. But the Song of Roland was some ancient, uh, maybe British poetry. Mm. Maybe it was France. I just know there was translation on one side of the page. Oh, I think English it might on the other. That, it sounds vaguely familiar but I think it might be French, actually. Also, we didn't address it until like 2 o'clock in the afternoon, which is the time of day when everyone's brain is going to sleep, especially middle schoolers. And it was, oh, it was awful. My youngest is in fourth grade. And he had a worksheet, which it was fine because I was helping him with it. But it was an Emily Dickinson poem. And I, I mean, I'm an adult and I generally don't think Emily Dickinson is an easy read. I just don't think she's an easy poet. I'm like, isn't there a Shel Silverstein poem that they could have put on this worksheet? Mm -hmm. They were having to use sort of context clues to figure out some of the words. Mm -hmm. And my fourth grader who, you know, I mean, he's a pretty bright kid. He mm -hmm. was like, Pensive, yeah, and I'm like, you're having to figure it out from Emily Dickinson context yeah, yeah, clues. Yeah, yeah. This is bananas. But I mean, anyway. timing is everything, and that's absolutely true for the reading life. Yeah, and I don't think fourth grade is the right timing for Emily. Dickinson. Yeah, that seems a little strange. <laughs> like, oh I mean, gosh. if a couple lines grab you, that's great. Yeah, but was, to hand that to a class, I mean, oh yeah, yeah. And and he has a mom who's an English major and a teacher who teaches English to help him. I'm like, right. what about the kids who don't have parents who have this background to help them? It like, just makes them hate English. Yeah. 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 Well, Anne, it has been great to have you on. Can you tell us where people can find you on social media? Sure. My hub online is my blog, modernmrsdarcy.com. And you can find me on Instagram is probably where I'm most active. That's at Anne Bogle. It's Anne with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. We also have our all books all the time Instagram account at what should I read next. Awesome. Well, it has been so great to have you here and I'm done fangirling. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.